Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. If you thought tax was boring, this episode of the podcast will change your mind. Dan Needle was a top corporate lawyer for 23 years, ending up as head of tax at London law firm Clifford Chance. But in 2022, he retired to set up a new think tank called Tax Policy Associates. Its aim is to improve UK tax policy and to improve the public understanding of the subject. This nerdish-sounding mission statement gives no indication of the political fireworks Needle's new venture was shortly to ignite. Listen in for the next 30 minutes to find out why, and why we should all be taking an interest in the way tax policy is set and applied. Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners about yourself and your area of work? My name is Dan Needle. I was for many years a tax lawyer, head of tax at Clifford Chance, big London law firm. I retired last year and set up a think tank called Tax Policy Associates. We aim to improve UK tax policy and improve the public understanding of tax. To do that, we write, me and a large number of collaborators, about tax, about tax policy, and we investigate when there is stuff going on which we think needs light casting on it. Right. Thank you very much for that introduction. Now, you've you've hit the headlines in the last year because you're... You've been called the tax lawyer who brought down Nadim Zahawi, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, because you unveiled, uh, with I think some journalists uh, as well, some that he had not been straight about his past uh, tax affairs. But um, what, what I'd like to start with a general question: what What is it in tax law uh, that has kind of led you down such a political path? And were you aware that what you were doing might have such consequences? I don't aim to be political. I have political views, everyone has political views, but I, perhaps naively, think that there are aspects of good tax policy that could be agreed by people across the political spectrum. Let's, yes, have a political argument about the size of the state, how high tax rates should be. But once you've resolved that, the basic design of the taxes, how they should work, rates aside, well, that shouldn't be controversial. And so that's what I wanted to focus on, and that's where I continue to focus. The fact that I got drawn into something that became very political around Mr. Zahawi was absolutely not my intention, and the focus of what I do is absolutely not about investigating politicians, not where my interest is. Right, but they're, they're, you're on your website, taxpolicy.org.uk, there are some, you know, there are many, um, say, politically sensitive topics that you're touching upon, and I'd like to, to, to talk about that in, in, in a moment. But um, when, you, when you talk about tax law, I mean, it strikes me as a non-lawyer and a non-tax expert that the complexity of this area is something that is almost designed to attract, if not you know, bad behavior, then at least it, it's, there must be you know, millions of loopholes that people with the intention of either avoiding tax or doing something illicit or even you know, fraudulent uh, can exploit because the tax code, I understand now in the UK, runs to around seventeen thousand pages. It's trebled in size since nineteen ninety seven. I don't know how small it was in the past, but doesn't that complexity leave the gates wide open for bad behaviour? A lot of that complexity is actually closing down loopholes. When you have a very simple tax system, you are open to people doing clever things that the rules don't quite envisage. How do the rules stop that? One way of doing it 
would be to have a simple rule that says, yeah, if you do something to avoid tax, then it gets it gets undone. But that is very hard to make work in practice in a way which doesn't create significant uncertainty for anyone doing anything complicated. So the UK went the other way. Instead, we have rules upon rules upon rules designed to stop avoidance. Now, that complexity comes at considerable cost, but I don't think it's right to say that the complexity is creating loopholes. These days, if you think you've found a loophole in the tax rules, you are almost certainly wrong, and it won't work. Right, but you need... uh, I mean, there can't be that many people around to understand even large parts of the code because it's so lengthy and Oh, there's no one who understands it. I I, I was, modesty aside, I, I was one of the leading experts on part of the tax code that is about yay big. Sorry, we're probably just being having audio here, but I'm holding my fingers a small distance apart. Um, I knew enough to be dangerous about a bit more. There were whole swathes of the tax code I knew nothing about. So yeah, no one understands even close to everything. But for most people, most of the time, you don't need to. If you are fire, you're an employee, your tax is paid under PAYE, you've got a bit of interest income, a few dividends, you've got nice, you've got a pension. Actually, most of this complexity doesn't matter to you. The bigger your business, the more complicated it is, the more you run into these rules. And most of the time, you can then afford the advisor to deal with it. Now, I, I think the complexity is a problem, but it's a problem which doesn't affect most people most of the time. In, in, in the grand scheme of things, I was looking up the, the percentage of um, GDP that is accounted for by government revenues in the UK. And since the Second World War, it's it's been in the range of 30 to 40 percent of GDP uh, government revenues. And most of that comes from from tax. Is, does that, is that a kind of natural limit, both on the up on the downside? Obviously, we're creeping towards the higher end of the range at the moment with the current fiscal mm. forecast. But you know, does, does there come a point at which it becomes just unproductive to try and chase further taxes and people just find even more ingenious ways of getting around the rules? So if you look at how UK tax has changed over the last 50, 60 years, you see a remarkable lack of change. There, There's a chart, if, if anyone's interested, if you if you Google infographics and taxpolicy.org.uk, our, our website, you'll see a chart showing how the tax makeup has changed. It's really changed remarkably little. As you say, it, it's varied between about 28% and about 36% over the last 60 years, mostly going up and down without much pattern. Compared to the rest of the OECD, that is kind of average to low. So could we raise more in tax? Yeah, lots of other countries do. But they do it by taxing most people more in most of the continent, Germany, France, Scandinavia, Belgium, Netherlands. People pay a lot more tax on their personal income. There's higher Social Security, national insurance, which you don't even see, but which ultimately comes out of your pay packet. And that's how these countries have more generous welfare states and and, and government services. So there, there absolutely is a possible choice to go in that direction. There's a possible choice to say how we are. There's also, of course, a possible choice to go in the other direction and shrink and be closer to, say, New Zealand or America and dramatically cut public spending and lower taxes, although there don't seem to be many people in politics now making that argument. Yes. I mean, after after the attempt by 
the short-lived Liz Trust government last autumn to go down the kind of lower tax and tax cutting route, which which had a, a big uh, negative impact on the government bond market. It seems that people are not really willing to touch that subject again. Well, that, so these, I mean, to, to to be fair, the the, the Liz Truss experiment was not about cutting public services and cutting tax. It was about cutting tax and not funding the gap. And I, I think yes. mo- most neutral observers always found that a, a bit of a peculiar line to take. Personally, I think our politics would be better and healthier if we had someone out there arguing for cuts in public service and cuts in tax to go along with it. But But we don't. It's obviously much easier for politicians to say that we can cut taxes without cutting spending or indeed the opposite. People on the left, a lot of them think that you can significantly improve public services without raising tax for most people. Both of those are delusions. So we need a more honest debate. I would love a more honest debate. Yeah. If you could change, I was going to ask you one thing, but if you could change three things about the UK tax system and make three swinging changes to, in your view, make things better, what would you do? First thing I'd do is I would dramatically change VAT. I would reduce the rate significantly to 12, 13%, something like that, and pay for that by expanding the things that are subject to VAT. So we have VAT exemptions for children's clothes, for food, and that that is an inefficient way to help people who have fewer resources because you're giving that benefit to everyone. And it means we're all paying a higher rate of tax on everything. So I would scrap those exemptions. Politically tricky, but if you're showing that it's coming back in a lower rate, maybe it's achievable. And at the same time, I've reduced the extremely high threshold at which businesses have to register for VAT, which is £85,000. The problem with that high registration threshold is it creates a massive incentive for small businesses when they're growing to keep their revenue just below £85,000. You you are literally stopping businesses from growing. And I I worry about the impact that has on society as a whole, on the the economy as a whole. So, So I would make a bunch of radical and probably politically very difficult changes around VAT, not to raise more government money, but to aim to reduce the rate. Okay, thank you. Big changes to VAT. Any suggestions for two and three? Oh, two, two, two and three. Okay. So income tax. A bit like the £85,000 in VAT, a serious problem with the tax system is when you have a cliff edge, a sudden point at which the treatment changes, because then you have all kinds of bad things happening at the cliff. So in income tax, if you start earning £50,000, then you lose child benefit. And it happens quite suddenly. And that means that your effective tax rate, your marginal tax rate, and every pound you you earn above £50,000 can be as high as 68% if you have three kids. 68%. No no tax system should hit anyone with a 68% tax rate. But we do. There's a similar and even bigger problem for people once they start earning £100,000. There's these generous government childcare schemes that have been created over the last few years worth quite a lot of money. But they disappear entirely if you earn £100,000. So you could be earning £99,000, pence. If you earn one penny more, you could literally lose tens of thousands of pounds in, in, in free childcare and childcare subsidy. Right, and that's so a major yeah, inefficiency. It's a major inefficiency. And it makes people do crazy things like turning away work, like, like refusing promotions. It, it, it's... 
desperately inefficient. It's a result of well-intentioned politicians' bodges of the tax system. And, and people say, lots of people would say, why should I care about anyone earning £50,000, let alone £100,000? The answer is, well, because that is holding the country back. If you have plumbers, doctors, accountants turning away work, that's a terrible thing for, for the UK, and it's something we should be stopping. And it should be, able to, it should be possible to do it without overall reducing tax on the wealthy. Thank you. And, and your third suggestion? My third suggestion. So... The way we tax land in this country is insane. So, so council tax is a crazy tax because someone living in a castle pays maybe three times as much as someone living in, in, in a tiny bedsit. The, it is in, an insufficiently progressive tax, which is a significant burden on the poor and which is nothing at all to the very wealthy. Right. We should change that. We should have more council so, tax. La, land value taxation. Land value taxation is probably politically tricky, but we can move a little bit in that direction. And the really bold thing to do would be to, while we're on it, abolish stamp duty land tax, which is a truly terrible tax, which gets in the way of people moving house for personal reasons, to chase employment, all the good reasons people want to move house. And stamp duty stops that. Transaction tax is generally a bad thing. SDLT is one of the worst. Yeah. Thank you very much. Now, let's return to politics for a second. Now, you, 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 apart from dislodging the uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer or playing a major role in his, uh, uh, his sacking, um, you, you've written a couple of articles on your website in the last year about the um, personal protective equipment scandal uh, that surrounded COVID. And, and quite recently, the Public Affairs Committee in the House of Commons says that they think up to £30 billion has been either stolen or can be unaccounted for as a result of scandals linked to PPE, either overinflated contract prices and the fact that they don't know where the money has gone and lost without knowing where and how uh, suggests that the number could be even higher. Now, you've written about um, the husband of Michelle Moan, who's a conservative life peer in the House of Lords, uh, that he, uh, in your opinion, did, did, did not disclose the fact that he was a uh, basically the beneficial owner of some intermediary companies that were involved in one of the larger PPE contracts. And you've also, you've then gone on to write on your um, website about some of the broader problems with lack of transparency about corporate ownership. And despite the, the legal reforms that are being made in this area, could you talk a bit about what got you interested in that case and then go on to talk a bit about the broader implications of what you found? Sure. So, I think on the PPE question as a whole, I have the slightly unfashionable view that I, 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 I'm not sure it's right to blame the government and to blame ministers. It's easy with the benefit of hindsight to, to, to look at this and say they made terrible mistakes, but, but, but they were desperate. They were doing what they could under very difficult circumstances. Um, on the other hand, it does look like there were people who somewhere between took advantage and acted inappropriately. And... The Michelle Moan matter looks particularly serious because it looks like she recommended a company without disclosing that the company was controlled by her husband and that this, I'll call it a conspiracy because I think it was, this conspiracy was facilitated by her husband, Douglas Barrowman, deliberately making sure that his name was not on that company when it should have been. And that, I believe, was a criminal offence committed by Barrowman and by the directors of that company. Right. But so far, he hasn't been charged with anything. And there's been, as far as we know, no criminal investigation. Yes. 
I mean, no doubt, whatever fraud may or may not have been committed around the PPE is very complicated and will take years to investigate. But the failure to register that company as being his is extremely simple and can take a few days to investigate. The failure to prosecute that is not unique to this case. It seems that there has been a complete failure to enforce, let alone prosecute, the rules around disclosing who owns companies. And this is really just part of that story, but it's quite a serious part. Right. Now, in a, in a, in a related or post on your website, you, you've took, called Companies House, the, the, the government agency that's supposed to, well, that manages how companies are registered and, and, and governed. You just called it a, you called it a giant fraud robot because it just it, it doesn't have any role really in checking the accuracy of information. And you, you on your website you point out some rather amusing cases if the problem weren't so serious about people calling themselves Adolf Tooth Fairy Hitler as the company director and and so on and so forth. But you know this is a serious problem, isn't it? And you're in the Michel Moen Douglas Barrowman case. Uh, you're arguing that he was a person with significant control of one or two of the companies involved in the PPE contracts, but didn't dis- didn't disclose it, despite the fact that in 2016 the law was changed in the UK to require people to to state that if they were a person of, with significant control, they should they should tell companies how. So, you know, what's going wrong here? Why 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 is the why, why despite that 2016 law change is the system not working? I think it's because of a failure to create incentives to stop bad behavior and then a failure to enforce the rules let me give you an example when i was a lawyer there was always a distinction between the points people were relaxed about and the point that people were terrified of and people were always terrified of any point that could attract criminal liability so you'd have your normal tax rules and if i say to someone no it's really difficult but i think probably this is okay not certain but probably it's okay that people are going to be fine with that if, however, there is a criminal offence in point, and I say, yeah, probably it's okay, they'll say, probably, I'm not going to do this just because you say it's probably it's okay if I could end up in prison. So an entirely different standard is applied. And that was not unique to my clients. That is a normal human instinct. But when it comes to Companies House, and when it comes to the, the people with significant control rules, the rules requiring you disclose who owns a company, here, while there are criminal offences, they are somewhat obscure and never used. And so a rational fraudster or someone who is thinking of crossing the line over into fraud isn't bothered about them at all. If we had a few high profile prosecutions, that might change. And if we had rules which applied criminal liability more easily, that also might change. But at the moment, these rules might as well not exist because if you are considering doing fraud stuff, you're not going to be particularly bothered by obscure criminal offences that are never prosecuted. Yeah, I mean, you make the point in your blog that uh, the, the 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 rules about you know how how to set a company up and how to register yourself as a director are still ridiculously lax. So if I want to go to open a bank account, I have to take my passport, a driving license, and a proof of address that can be verified by the bank, and they know who I that I am, who I say say I am. But in the case of a person registering as a company director that doesn't exist does it and people you know let alone not not only does it not exist people are happily registering companies in fake names as you've shown and also in more alarmingly using other people's addresses and then those people who who found that their address has been used to set up a company can't easily 
change the register. I mean, it's quite a dramatic uh, uh, you know, picture when you look at it, and 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 amazing that this has been allowed to happen. You know, what's going on? What's is, are the politicians simply not aware of it, or they just have not bothered, or have they've had an incentive not to worry about it? A company's house was created in 1844, and it essentially works the way it always did, that it trusted you if you said you were setting up a company, and you would toddle along to company's house, and you'd present them with things, and they'd stamp them, and the company was created. And then as time went on, you were able to file forms by post. And fraud was fairly easy, but not so not so straightforward. If you have to turn up in person, and if you have to post things, it's hard to do it in, in bulk. It's a bit hard to do from abroad. And then suddenly, in the 2000s, companies house became computerised. And people talk about government IT failures. This was an IT triumph. It's a, you know, it's a brilliant system. It's fantastically easy to set up a company now. But they never changed the basic rule that company's house is just a robot. And it trusts what you give it. And that degree of trust was appropriate to in-person incorporations in the 1840s. It doesn't work when someone can log in from China and use companies' house systems to set up 200 companies, just like yes. that. So that's why I say companies' house is a giant fraud robot. That's what the rules make it. It's no one at companies' house's fault. And so I get a bit annoyed when MPs have a go at companies' house for, for, for being useless. No, no it, it's the rules that the MPs have created and failed to create that have built this robot. It, it's the MPs who can stop it. Right, but and at the moment there is a complaining about it ain't good enough. There is an economic crime and corporate transparency bill that's working its way through the House of Lords, I believe. Um, how far, in your opinion, will that go in addressing these problems we've been discussing? So, there are going to be changes. There are going to be changes around requiring um, more disclosure of the ownership of land. There's um, significant changes around giving companies' house an investigative role and. Uh, an ability to, to to refuse data or to refuse incorporations. How effective this is is going to depend on how well funded it is and how much work is done around it. If you look at the banks, the banks spend the most enormous sums of money on anti-money laundering. And you know, God knows they, they've certainly made plenty of mistakes, but most of the time they do an extremely good job and the banks devote a lot of resources to it. I don't really see signs that anyone's getting ready to create those sort of resources for Companies House. But you have to. Yeah. And, and, and those wholesale registrations of companies you were just talking about, they're still going on, aren't they? I, I, I'm connected to Graham Barrow on LinkedIn, and he's been on the podcast. And every day he puts a, a you know, screenshot of 30, 40 new company registrations with very dodgy sounding names to a street name in some remote part of the UK. You wonder whether the person living there has any idea that this is going on. There doesn't seem to be any anything yet happening to to stop uh, people creating fraudulent companies. Yeah, I, I think that's right, and it. I, I believe I'm right in saying that there's nothing in the law changes coming through which are going to prevent someone registering a company for an address which is nothing to do with it. Yeah, I, mean, I have some suggestions on yeah. the, the Tax Policy Associates website of how that could work, how you could force a company to be tied to an address with some certainty. But there's no sign of that happening. So you have all of these, all of these companies being created, and anyone interested in this should absolutely follow Graham on, on Twitter and LinkedIn. 
Yes, I, and, I saw on your website that you said that people, you know, they, they, HMRC could do something as simple as sending a verification code to the address that's being used for the company, and then someone would have to yeah, uh, so go to HMRC the website and enter it, and, and the same same as we have yeah. for personal tax. Yeah, yeah, HMRC are very very smart about do, doing that for personal tax, but companies house do nothing like that, and they need to. Otherwise, these companies are going to be established for fraudulent purposes. Graham's mysterious companies. Impossible to say if they're being established for frauds in the UK, tax evasion in the UK, frauds in Upper Volta, God knows what, God knows where, sanctions busting, who knows? But one thing's for sure, they don't belong in the streets where they're registered. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, I was shocked to find out the, you know, the volumes of money in the, the, the Danske Bank and Deutsche Bank, um, Estonia and Latvia money laundering scandals that ended up passing through UK Either UK limited companies or UK limited partnerships, or English limited partnerships, Scottish limited partnerships. It seemed to be an integral part of the chain of money laundering and fraud that um, was being used to move trillions of dollars into the financial system. And it seems to be uh, incredible that this loophole is still allowed to exist. Yeah, it's amazing. The if UK banks had been involved in that scandal, it would have been. It would have been headline news, heads would have rolled, probably boards of these banks would have been removed overnight, but Companies House facilitates this and nothing much changes. And only now we're seeing changes, and even then, not far enough and very, very slowly. It it really needs government to, to grab this by the scruff of the neck and say that, yes, we're going to have to accept that Companies House will be a bit harder to use for normal businesses, just a bit. Nothing like as hard as setting up a bank account, but a bit harder than it is at the moment. But we need to do that in order to avoid the UK being a spectacularly successful venue for money laundering and dodgy companies. Right. So we need the political will together. Yeah, we need a political will which looks at the substance of what's going on and doesn't just laugh at the silly names and blame companies else. Yeah. Um, we've talked so far about the UK and the remaining five minutes of the podcast. Can we talk a bit about what's going on globally? Because we have these very... Um, you know, powerful multinational companies, many of whom operate across the internet for the things they're doing. And, you know, they're very mobile, they, they're, they're very powerful, and, you know, their revenues are bigger than many governments' revenues. What, if I could ask you the same questions I did earlier, what, what reform would you like to see, maybe what single reform would you like to see at a global level to try and redress some of the inequities in the system? So taxing multinationals is hard because it has to be done on a coordinated basis internationally. If you don't all do it in more or less the same way, then some countries won't play ball. Those countries will then become more attractive to to, to bad players. And of course, that then increases the incentive in other countries to refuse to play as well. So you need to be careful. You need to be quite slow and careful. There is a major reform in the process of being enacted, which it is the OECD's Pillar 2 project. And this essentially is a 15% minimum tax, which will be imposed worldwide on multinationals. So the days of Google being able to make money tax-free in Bermuda will be over. Any Bermudan company is going to be taxed at 15%, either in Bermuda or somewhere else in the world will tax um, that Bermudan company. So this is a very big change. And we need to see how it works, how much money it raises, what the loopholes are, and then think what the next step would be. So, so here I, I, I would tread gently, but I would absolutely get on with implementing the OECD rules. Right. And, and does the, does the you know, more broadly the change towards, towards uh, 
you know, a, a more digital economy. In the case of money, we're moving towards digital currencies, maybe sent, maybe government-issued digital currencies. Does that uh, trend open up new possibilities for for tax? You talked earlier about simplifying and reducing the rates of uh, reducing the rates of VAT and and, and broadening the coverage. Um, is there something that could be done uh, either nationally or globally? You, and people get very upset if you talk about taxing people through central bank digital currency. It doesn't, to me, seem like a very you know bad idea if it was done at a very you know, low marginal rates. It could be a, quite a good way of making sure that things get taxed properly and fairly. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I think that is probably unnecessary. I mean, I, I, I think that we already have the tools to ensure that, say, a micro business, someone setting up a coffee shop, shouldn't really have to spend any time filling in a tax return. Why can't they simply put their sales through their point of sales app on their iPhone, put their expenses through that app or another app, and then bang, the tax falls out of that. It should not be beyond the wit of man to do that. Now, what currency transactions are in? Um, that's a detail, and tax doesn't really care about currencies. What we're interested in, what, what are the transactions? What is the company doing? And now all that information is being electronically captured, it shouldn't be too hard for the tax just to drop out of it. Dan, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been a fascinating chat, and it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening to this New Money Review podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it or share it on your podcast listening platform. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so using Patreon. Details of how to do so are on the right margin of our website, newmoneyreview.com. Listen in soon for our next episode.